Good morning. Welcome this Transfiguration Sunday to Queen Anne Lutheran Church as we turn our gaze to the mountain. I wanted to say a few words about my leave of absence. First, that it's nice to see you again. It's been a difficult month for me, and I want to thank you for keeping my family and me in your prayers. Loss, as most, if not all of you know, is horrible when it comes to someone especially you love, but it's even worse if you feel like you're alone in your pain, which, thanks to you and your presence here today, I know I am not. I wanted to share those remarks, and we'll say a little more at the end of the service, but just to kind of bring you up to speed on where things are, I am back now for a while, and I look forward to resuming my call and ministry as your pastor. Now, a few things to share before we begin. First, as a gift to yourself and your neighbor, we invite you at this time, please, to silence your phones. Next, as always, if you wish to receive communion from the pew rather than at the rail, you are invited to pick up a communable on the table in the narthex and uh, receive at my direction later in the service. Third and finally, I invite you to take a deep breath as we stand in the presence of God and prepare ourselves for worship. Our gathering hymn is number 867 in the red hymnal. In thee is gladness, please rise as you are able.
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In peace, let us pray to the Lord. For the peace from above and for our salvation, let us pray to the Lord. For the peace of the whole world, for the well-being of the church of God, and for the unity of all. Let us pray to the Lord. For this holy house, and for all who offer here their worship and praise, let us pray to the Lord. Save, comfort, and defend us, gracious Lord. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, in the transfiguration of your Son, you confirmed the mysteries of the faith by the witness of Moses and Elijah, 
and in the voice from the bright cloud declaring, Jesus, your beloved son, you foreshadowed his resurrection and ours. Transform us as you did your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. The first reading is from Exodus, the 24th chapter. At Mount Sinai, Moses experienced the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights. The glory of the Lord settled on the mountain, and on the seventh day, God called out to Moses. On the mountain, God gave Moses the stone tablets inscribed with the Ten Commandments. A reading from the book of Exodus. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses set out with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. To the elders he had said, Wait here for us until we come to you again, for Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute may go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Word of God, word of life. Thanks be to God. The second reading is from 2 Peter, the first chapter. At the transfiguration, God's voice was heard, declaring Jesus to be the beloved Son. By the activity of the Holy Spirit, God's voice continues to be heard through the word of Scripture. A reading from the second letter of Peter. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father, when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory, saying, this is my Son, my Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come from the mountain while we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic message more fully confirmed. You will do well to be attentive to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you must understand this that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by human will, but men and women moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Word of God, word of life. Thanks be to God. Please rise for the reading of the Gospel.
The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 17th chapter. Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Grace to you and peace from God, the source of life, and from Jesus, who is the life and light itself in the world. Amen. The sermon is about what our first reading refers to as the mountain of God. There will be a few points where I get into the weeds, and I simply ask at those moments that you bear with me. My hope by the end is that this will all be clear. I do want to say uh, a word about a term that I will use once or twice, and that is the word eschatological. Eschatological, as you may know, refers to uh, what they call in the Greek the last things, the last day of this creation and or the first day of God's new creation. So when I refer to eschatology, I'm referring to what lies ahead when it comes to the intersection between time and God or time and salvation. Whenever the story of the transfiguration comes around, most preachers, myself included, focus on the people, the characters of the story. The first verse introduces us to four of them, Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Now, as you know, Peter, James, and John supposedly make up the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. Jesus confides in them. Yet, for an event as important as the transfiguration, why didn't he include the rest of them? I mean, imagine how Peter's brother Andrew in particular would have felt especially since Jesus called him before he summoned James and John, according to Matthew 10, verse 2. Why was he excluded? Did he fall, perhaps, from the ranks? Verse 3 introduces two more characters in the story, namely Elijah and Moses. They appear next to Jesus, as the text says, talking with him. Again, the same question comes to mind. 
Why did they appear instead of other great men of Israel's past, like Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, or David, Israel's greatest king? What made them so special? Fortunately, while no one can explain why Jesus left behind nine of his, of his 12 disciples, although my theory is he was going to the early service and could only take a few of them, the rest of them would come to the 1030 service, we do at least know why Moses and Elijah appear in the story. Moses represents the law, which God gave him in the form of the Ten Commandments. The commandments were meant to teach the Israelites how to live in right relationship with God and one another. Most of you probably know this. The first three of the Ten Commandments concern one's relationship with God, whereas the remaining seven concern how that relationship should inspire one's relationship to neighbor. Elijah, on the other hand, represents the prophets. That is, those who speak on behalf of God when the people of God violate the commandments God gave them through Moses. These commandments serve to promote the flourishing of all people. When that fails, as when the rich steal from or exploit the poor, prophets like Amos and Isaiah rise up and condemn the practice as contrary to God's stated will. By highlighting the role of Moses and Elijah in the story of Jesus' transfiguration, the intent of the story seems clear. The writer of Matthew's gospel wants to show the continuity between Jesus and the tradition that came before him. Like Moses, Jesus has the authority to teach and interpret the law, like Elijah, Jesus possesses the ability to speak on behalf of God. Why else would the voice from the heavens conclude by saying, listen to him? Listen to him. The story, in short, underscores the authority of Jesus in matters of teaching and preaching. Jesus correctly teaches or interprets the law, as we see in the Sermon on the Mount, just as he faithfully preaches or declares God's word. The same spirit that spoke through the law and later through the prophets, to borrow the language of the Nicene Creed, now speaks through him. This is why when somebody identifies the God of the Old Testament as somehow different than the God of the New, Orthodox Christian teaching says otherwise. According to this story, among others, Jesus doesn't bring us something that is out of step with what came before. He simply provides continuity and different emphases. So there you have it, right? Jesus, Moses, Elijah, Peter, James, and John. The cast of today's gospel reading. The men we meet at the top of the mountain. But what about the mountain itself? Have you ever heard an explanation concerning its significance? What makes it so special? If not, then I have fantastic news for each of you. I am going to talk about a mountain for the next 15 minutes. 
I'm going to preach an entire sermon on a big pile of dirt, showing you three angles from which the mountain in today's story has been viewed, the literal, the spiritual, and yes, the eschatological. In more conventional language, setting aside shop talk, I'm going to show you why the mountain in today's story matters, how it can enable us to express everything from the challenges that come with our faith to the hope we have for life beyond the grave as Christians. And really, it's only about 12 more minutes. It's not even 15, so you're going to be fine. Now, to me, mountains are nature's cathedrals. The bigger they are, the more they inspire a sense of awe and wonder. Think about your own experience. As you get closer and closer, say, to Mount Rainier, the more and more it presumably inspires within you awe and wonder. The capacity of mountains to inspire certain feelings like awe belong to people everywhere, including those, of course, who lived in the ancient Near East. Indeed, they were the site of divine revelation throughout the ancient world, even in cultures as far-flung as Greece and Japan. A mountain was a common location for a theophany, which is a fancy way of saying a place where God becomes manifest. God seems to favor mountains. While our gospel reading never identifies the high mountain upon which Jesus and his disciples heard that voice from the heavens, Exodus tells us that Moses ascended Mount Sinai only to be, and I love this imagery, enveloped by a thick cloud where he met God and talked with him, as Exodus 32 says, like a friend, face to face. The writers of Deuteronomy and 1 Kings likewise refer to Mount Sinai, only they call it, confusingly, Mount Horeb. Both refer to the same mountain, the place to which Elijah, in this case, later flees to escape the wrath of Queen Jezebel. I love the story. Elijah travels 40 days and 40 nights which is the Hebrew way of saying a really long time to reach Mount Horeb. His journey would have been arduous. Traveling through the wilderness of the broader Sinai Peninsula would have included the prospect of facing threats ranging from wild beasts to what the HarperCollins Bible Dictionary calls savage wandering tribes. The greeting Elijah receives upon arrival seems accordingly disproportionate. Instead of welcoming him with open arms and killing the proverbial fatted calf, God simply asks, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I don't know about you, but if I was Elijah, I would have probably been a little miffed. I mean, I can't run as far as Mark Opplinger can. But if I tried to run for a very long time and receive that kind of greeting, I would have been a little upset. After all, when the rest of the Israelites fell away from God by worshiping idols, destroying God's altars, and killing God's prophets, Elijah alone remained faithful. He was the last 
prophet God had, or as Adam Driver once put it, the last Jedi. I had to get in one reference when I got back. There it is. Second greatest story ever told. Seemingly unmoved, however, God replies by telling Elijah to stand on the same mountain that Moses had stood upon centuries earlier and wait for God to pass by as God had done before. This time, though, something different happens. Elijah encounters God neither in a cloud nor in the spectacular elements of the storm outside the cave. Instead, God comes to him in the sheer silence that follows the storm. The sheer silence that follows the storm. It's a pivotal moment in the biblical chronology of Israel, one where the classic experience of God undergoes a fundamental change. Revise your expectations, the author seems to be telling his audience, so that you may come to know God's quieter, more subtle ways. God's quieter, more subtle ways. Stop expecting, in other words, to find or experience God on your terms. Stop looking for God in all the wrong places. Is this not exactly the message we need to hear when we reject God or become angry with God for failing to solve our problems or swooping down to save us whenever we need help? Might the story of Elijah invite us to put ourselves in the prophet's stance Climbing the mountain where his ancestors encountered God only to experience the Lord in a totally different way. In the sound, as the old Simon and Garfunkel song goes, of silence. I said that the first service. I think if I were to do it again, I would say it and not try to sing it. But you get the point either way. Now, that's not the only type or understanding of a mountain as the setting, you might say, for Elijah's encounter with God. There is another type of mountain in the Bible. Elijah's experience of God offers us, that said, an important lesson. Had he insisted that God meet him the way God met his ancestors, namely as a devouring fire on the top of the same mountain, he would have missed God's much more subtle presence entirely. He would have also, I submit, missed the point. God shows up on God's terms, not ours. God meets us in hidden and surprising ways, the sharpest expression of which is the cross, where God confounds the expectations of the world, not to be found in power, glory, and might, but in, with, and under shame, vulnerability, and suffering. Missing the point, however, would not have belonged to Elijah alone. Whenever we reduce the truth of a story like his to an actual occurrence or event in history, we overlook its deeper significance, that is, its true value. Such, at least, was the viewpoint of a person named Pseudo-Dionysius. Now, according to the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul converted a man named Dionysius the Areopagite after preaching in the city square of Athens. Several centuries later, an anonymous Christian mystic 
wrote a series of reflections on spirituality under the pseudonym Dionysius to lend his writings greater credibility, hence the name Pseudo-Dionysius. As a mystic, Pseudo-Dionysius sought to uncover what the stories of the Bible teach us at a deeper level regarding the soul and its spiritual journey or ascent back to God. Instead of interpreting the trek of Moses or Elijah to the top of Mount Sinai exclusively as an event that took place once upon a time in the somewhat distant past, Dionysius interpreted them as allegories. An allegory, as you know, refers to a story with two different levels of meaning. An obvious meaning and a hidden meaning. A literal meaning and a spiritual meaning. In fact, one of his predecessors, a man named Origen of Alexandria, argued that when one encounters a contradiction in the text, that is the biblical text, which he believed God put there on purpose, one is invited to look at one tripped over to explore and uncover its deeper meaning. On its surface then, the story of Moses has an obvious or literal meaning. It tells us about a man who climbed a mountain and then encountered God. Big deal. I do that every day. To find, I actually don't. To find, God finds me because I'm a Lutheran. To find the deeper meaning of the story, we simply need to ask ourselves who Moses represents or symbolizes. Thankfully, Dionysius answers our question with great ease. Moses, he says, represents the human spirit as it ascends toward God through a special method of contemplation called the via negativa or the negative way. Rather than define this term, let's practice it. Think for a moment of the different ways we describe God. We refer to God, say, as rock, as our redeemer, or perhaps as our father who art in heaven. We attribute to God a range of qualities as well. We say God is good or merciful, for instance. One New Testament writer even goes so far as to equate God with love itself. Imagine that. Not a person who loves, but love itself. Now what happens when we begin to strip away, clear aside, or negate these names and descriptions we have for God? We speak, for example, of God as a loving father, but we all instinctively know that our understanding of fatherhood falls dramatically short of encapsulating God's actual nature. God may be like a loving father, sure, but fatherhood constitutes only one dimension of God's being, not the greater mystery of God in all its totality. So what do we do? Well, perhaps Islam can help. This tradition employs a litany of 99 names for God. The hundredth name, believed to be the one which expresses the true essence of divinity, is honored in silence. We see this in the story of Elijah as well. After setting aside wind and fire as ways of referring to God, he encounters God, you might say, at the peak of his spiritual journey in the sheer silence that follows these things. Now, does this sound a little lofty? If so, 
Let me offer another example of what I mean by the, the method in question. Imagine someone said to me, Dan, describe your mother. Tell me who she was. It certainly would not take me long to realize the inadequacy of my response. I could describe my, mother, my mom as unconditionally loving. She certainly was that most of the time. Empathetic. She always was that. Creative, kind, artistic, and sure, sometimes capable, uh, critical, the source of the inner critic I now have. By the end of uh, uh, my time as a professor and the beginning of, of my time at Queen Anne Lutheran, she became uh, even less critical and just appreciative, supportive. Yet none of these terms could capture her essence, could they? They might frame her, but they can't name her. They might frame her, but they can't name her. How much truer would that be of God? The mystery of which, to quote one of my favorite sages, surrounds us, penetrates us, and binds the galaxy together. I totally lied to you. That is a second Star Wars quote. I completely forgot about it. So let's go with the Bible. The mystery in whom we live, move, and have our being. That's another type of mountain. The mountain that represents the spiritual journey or the path we take in our gradual unnaming of God as a way of framing the silent mystery that is God. We have now viewed the mountain of God from two different angles. Literally speaking, the mountain refers to the big old pile of dirt Moses and Elijah climbed in order to experience God. Allegorically speaking, or figuratively speaking, on the other hand, the mountain represents the path we take in our effort to unlearn what we have learned about God so that we can experience God in pure contemplation as the silent mystery beyond all words and names we have for God. Wow. There is, nevertheless, in the Bible, another mountain. This mountain has no geographical location, nor does it represent the upward path of the soul back to its source. A moment ago, I mentioned my mother. She died, as most of you know, a month and two days ago. It was a loss beyond words. Afterward, many people offered their condolences. Most of them, thankfully, refrained from the usual religious platitudes. Rarely did I hear... She's in a better place, which is good. I know she would have strongly preferred her recliner in the living room to the urn where her ashes now reside on the mantle. Right? My brother, incidentally, some of you know this, my mom painted signs, uh, and one of the signs she painted about 10 or 15 years ago just says, love lives here. He found that sign and put it right in front of her urn. Love that. It's so hard to lose a mom. All of us must. We all lose people we love so dearly. This is where the third mountain comes in. There is a place in the Bible where I hope my mom will reside someday, not just on the mantle. A different mountain than the one about which we heard earlier. On this mountain, God will destroy the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. 
and he will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and it will be said on that day, Lo, this is from our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. That's the vision of Isaiah 25. Of course, you know the name of this mountain. It appears not only in Isaiah, but also the book of Revelation. It's Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. Zion is not a mountain somewhere on the Sinai Peninsula, nor is it a metaphorical mountain we must climb in our effort to experience God. It belongs rather in the future as a symbol of our hope that God will ultimately transform this broken world into a new creation, one where death, as the Apostle Paul says, has lost its sting and love has conquered all. I think about that mountain and about the promise we have that God there will wipe away our tears. And I think about one of the last most vivid experiences I had with my mom. Some of you know that uh, I came back, of course, for about uh, eight or nine days to set things right here, to line up your supply preachers, and then return home. When I returned home, however, what I discovered was that during my time away, my mother had lost her ability to speak, and she had that glassy look in her eyes. Do you know that look? The kind where somebody's uh, looking at you but not really seeing you. And I remember vividly the night before she died, placing my hand on her arm and saying, Mom, it's Dan. I love you so much. Our nurse, uh, the hospice nurse, told us that it was the right time to say something, to say our goodbyes, because we were just about to give my mom another shot of morphine. And she opened her eyes, and she smiled, and a tear came down her face. A lot of tears came down this one. I hope, beyond hope, that there's something after that somehow I'll be able to see my mom again. And my heart goes out to all of you who have lost people who are dear and near to you in your lives. The promise of our gospel is that death will not have the last word, and that God will wipe away every tear. Jesus' transfiguration prefigures the new creation that comes at the end. On a mountain he climbed for us, we see in the radiance of his appearance a foretaste of the feast to come, one that serves as the basis for our hope. Mom, I will see you again, or so the transfiguration helps me to believe. This is your mountain. This is our mountain. In Jesus' name, amen.
You could summarize my entire message and really the gospel of our Lord in verse 3, fulfiller of the past and hope of things to be. Dear friends, let us confess the words of our, the, our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father of all, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ. Called together to follow Jesus, we pray for the church, the world, and all in need. Embolden your church as it witnesses to the majesty and mercy of your Son. Move us to share our stories of your faithfulness and forgiveness along with our hope in your invincible love. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Dwell with your whole creation, from the tallest mountain peak to the deepest valley. Inspire within us the desire to tend and care for your creation. Bless the work of conservation organizations and disaster relief agencies around the world. Lord, in your mercy, Hear our prayer. Guide and give wisdom to all in authority. Where there is conflict, give us and them the desire for peace. Help them to see and follow diplomacy whenever possible. Bring freedom and justice to all nations. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Give shelter to those lacking safe homes. Spur communities to work for fair housing for all. Protect our neighbors whose dwellings do not keep out dangerous heat or cold. Accompany with your touch those who are homebound, sick or isolated. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. For whom or what else do the people of God pray today? Hear our prayer. Hear our prayer. Gracious God, we pray for every person here today that you be with them in their joys and struggles, 
that you give them hope, that you curb their cynicism, and that you tend to all of us who are beleaguered by doubt. I ask especially prayers for those uh, in our congregation who have recently experienced loss, including the family of Lee Mathis who passed away earlier this week. May you tend to them and may you receive her in your eternal peace. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. Receive our thanksgiving for those people in our lives we have loved and lost. Wipe the tears from our eyes, Lord, as we anticipate being reunited with our loved ones in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We bring to you our needs and hopes, O God, trusting your wisdom and power revealed in Christ, whose transfiguration on your holy mountain foreshadows his resurrection and ours. Amen. Please rise now as you are able for the great thanksgiving. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is indeed right, our duty and our joy that we should at all times and in all places give thanks and praise to you. Almighty and merciful God, through our Savior Jesus Christ, who sharing our life lived among us to reveal your glory and love, that our darkness should give way to your brilliant light. And so with all the choirs of angels, with the church on earth and the hosts of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn. In the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. Again, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it for all to drink, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sin. Do this for the remembrance of me. As we prepare our hearts for this holy meal, 
Let us pray the prayer Jesus taught us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Give us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. The kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. In this place of grace, all are welcome to the table of grace. If you are receiving communion today at the rail, um, please come forward uh, as we've been doing now for several weeks, uh, actually several months. And if you wish to receive a blessing in place of Holy Communion, simply fold your arms. For those of you who are receiving from the pew, I invite you to take out your communable and follow my lead. This is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you.
Let us pray. Holy One, we thank you for the healing that comes to us in this meal. Renew our strength to do justice, to show others kindness, and to journey humbly with you. Amen. I invite you to be seated, please, for our announcements. Good morning, and welcome once again to Queen Anne Lutheran Church. I hope that my message of hope got through to some of you. I know that if there's anybody who's ever doubted the afterlife, it's me. But at the same time, it's, it's so hard to watch somebody you love so dearly go from body to ash. It just renders me speechless. And as you know, that's not something I'm always very good at. <laughs> I wanted to thank someone who this morning gave me a card, said she didn't have the words. Your words aren't what's most important to me. It's your sentiment. It's your kindness. It's knowing that no matter what we think about what dreams may come, we're in this together. And uh, we walk together. And my hope is just that I can be um, even a, a better pastor because of this. Because now I do know what it's like to walk in your shoes. I've done upwards of 25, 30 memorials since I've been here at Queen Anne Lutheran, maybe more. And I got it, but I didn't really get it. And so now my hope is that as a, a brother in Christ, I can walk with you even more so and be with you and, and trust with you and hope with you. So thank you for bearing with me. I thought I'd just come right back and after having some time away, everything would be perfect and doesn't quite work out that way. But the time that I did have away helped me tremendously. And so I, I give thanks to you as a church for allowing me that opportunity to grieve the greatest loss I've ever experienced. I wanted to... Uh, thank another person today, and that is our wonderful guest organist, um, Wyatt Smith. To, uh, you have some big shoes to fill here, and uh, I, I think that uh, I can see why Kyle uh, invited you to join us today. We are certainly grateful for you sharing your gifts uh, for music with us. Uh, if you would like to learn more about um, Dr. Smith, you can read about that in the bulletin. We have another, a number of opportunities coming up. Uh, one of those would be the Lenten series that we do every year. Uh, that will be this coming Wednesday, uh, starting with Ash Wednesday. Uh, we have two services that will run the duration of Lent up to Holy Week, one at noon and one at 7.30. If encountering God in silence is something that speaks to you, as it were, these services fell right from heaven. They are contemplative in orientation and deliberately uh, invite you and I into uh, a meditative pose, you might say, before God. So please join us beginning this Wednesday for Lenten midweek services. If you are of a particular gender, then you are invited as well to uh, uh, the Lenten breakfast um, which will be on uh, Saturday, February 25th. QALC women 
will be holding the annual Lenten breakfast and they will be bringing back our own, or our formerly our own, uh, Dev Squires, now an ordained pastor. Uh, so please join us. That's on Saturday, February 25th, 9.30 to 11 a.m. And Candy, I'm going to guess that if they haven't turned me away, they wouldn't necessarily turn away men of the congregation, but it is a women's Lenten breakfast. Okay, good to know, not an age limitation. Okay, so there's a target audience, but not really. <laughs> okay, that's good, that's good. All right, so please join us for that. Are there any other announcements for the good of the congregation? Then I invite you please to rise as you are able for the closing blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and grant you peace. Our sending hymn number 318 is Alleluia, Song of Gladness. Sing boldly. Sing boldly.